the page 44, <laughs> 44A, <laughs> you could say. The one that looks like this, this page 44 is the one we're going to be on. So if you need that one, come and grab it. There's 43 and 44, Mr. Messick. Yep, there you go. There you go, Mary. I'll give you 43 and 44. How about that? Yep. Oh, okay, here you go. Okay, well, I'll leave those there. That'll get us get us going. All right, well, Merry Christmas. Glad you're here on this Christmas Eve morning. We have several, of course, who are traveling, and so a little bit less in here today, but that's all right. Uh, that means you'll just have to be extra talkative. All right, well, how about I uh, go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for the Christmas season and what it represents. We ask that today you would bless our fellowship together, that we would have a sweet time of, uh, of fellowship, that we would be moved nearer to you because of the time we spend. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. All right, let me make sure I've done everything. Okay, we're good. All right, so continuing here in our study on sanctification within the section on salvation, this will probably be the last lesson, actually, on salvation. We've been in this for three months, I think. And next week, when we start on the fake page 44, which is actually page 45, we will begin a new section on the nature of the church, all right? So we're finishing up our study of salvation and going to start on the study of the nature of the church. But we were talking about last week at the bottom of page 43, the difference between justification and sanctification, and we outlined several differences that uh, I think I can pull up easy enough if I do that. Okay, yeah, I've got to click through it. Okay, we looked at these differences between justification and sanctification, some major differences. These are terms that you need to know as a theologian, because everybody is a theologian. What does it mean to be a theologian? It means you study God, and everybody in here studies God in one way or another. And so to be a good biblical theologian, you need to know these terms. These terms are in the Bible. You need to know the differences between justification and sanctification. And now what's amazing is that even though they are different and the distinctions are important, they do go together. Everybody who has been justified will be sanctified by Christ. Even if you, you only uh, are a Christian for a day in your life, if you believe on Jesus on your deathbed, that rest of the day that you have, the Lord is working in your heart, sanctifying you. It begins at the moment of salvation. Okay? And likewise, you could say that everybody who is truly being sanctified by the Lord has been justified. Nobody is becoming righteous. No one is becoming holy who has not yet believed on the Lord Jesus. Those two things absolutely go together, even though they're different. Right? And so we walked through that last time, and that's where we ended. And uh, now this time, we're going to start at the top of page 44, the true 44. And here you have a couple of blanks to fill in at the top of that page. Believers have two natures, making victory over sin possible in this life. Believers have two natures, making victory over sin possible in this life. Okay, now let's start defining what that means. 
The believer has a new, completely sanctified nature. And the reference here is 1 Corinthians 1-2. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1 together just to see what's being referenced. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Now, if you uh, remember much about the Corinthians, this could seem like a very interesting place to start. 1 Corinthians 1-2, as we think about sanctification. <clears throat> Because if we were to, uh, I don't know, just give a quick judgment of how the Corinthians were doing, were they very sanctified? <laughs> we just finished a little over three years of going through First and Second Corinthians. You should be pretty familiar with this church and all the stinking problems they had. The very first sermon I preached in First Corinthians 1, when we started First Corinthians, was titled, Holy Little Rascals. Because they were just like... Rascals, rebels, scoundrels, but they were also holy because they had been saved. All right, so let's look at what this says. Let's go uh, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 1. Who could read those two verses for us? That was a hand movement, Stan. I'm going to count that as you were volunteering. (laughs) Well, go ahead. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. Sosthenes. All right, verse 2 is a very full verse. That's a long verse for the Bible. But look at what it says about these Corinthians. These Corinthians who were having problems with sexual immorality, they were suing one another, they were still visiting idols, temples, and their culture, they were uh, competing with one another with spiritual gifts. Let's see, what else? Oh, they, they were tolerating sin in the church, they were not practicing church discipline. Even the man who had his father's wife, they weren't addressing him. All these problems. Look at what it says they have been. They have been sanctified. Now, how on earth could anyone look at that church with all those problems and say they have been sanctified? What do you think? How how could Paul possibly say such a thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And certainly there were some in the church who weren't believers. That's true. That's true. But there are multiple times when he says to the church as a whole, that they needed to change. How could it be that someone who is still struggling with sin could be called sanctified? And who still struggles with sin? Show of hands. Okay, okay, good, good, good. How could it be (laughs) that any of you, including me, could be sanctified? Okay, it's a work in progress. So that's completely true. But what about the past tense nature of this? Notice it says, have been sanctified. That's past. That's not like those who are being sanctified, though the Bible does say that at certain points. It's it's not saying those who will be sanctified, though the Bible talks about that at certain points. This is clearly past tense. You have been sanctified. So how, how? Go ahead.
Yeah. Okay, so that's a very valid point that up to this point, there has been the work of God on their hearts, even though they're not yet what they should be, right? They're not perfectly mature. They're not perfect. They never will be. None of us will ever be perfect in this life. But God has worked in their lives in such a way that they have been sanctified to the point that they are now. But let's hone in on this word that we have also in this verse, saints. Saints. What does that word mean? Does anybody know? Does it mean those who were appointed by the Catholic Church after you die to be like a really special person in heaven that you can pray to? Okay. No, it doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. Saints means, or to be a saint, means to be a holy one. And so here in the plural, saints means holy ones. How holy were the believers in Corinth? Okay, so... Okay, so you got two aspects to this, don't you? Two aspects. So what's the first way you were just saying? You said on their own, they're not. What, what's that referring to? Okay, like you could say, because you used works and you used deeds, you could say in practice, we are not completely holy, are we? But what's the other sense you were talking about? Having faith in the finished work of Jesus. Okay, so on the one hand, let's see, which black marker was better? This one was better. All right, so on the one hand, with faith, you have imputed righteousness. Who can remind us what that is? I know it's Christmas Eve and we're thinking presents and jingle bells and reindeer and all that stuff, but let's talk about imputation. What is imputed righteousness? And how much righteousness does Jesus have? Okay, all right. Imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. In that sense, how holy are we? Perfectly holy, right? Yes, all those words apply. Now, in practice, we struggle, don't we? In practice, we struggle. Okay, so a struggle to cooperate with God toward Christ-likeness. That's what I'll say about this. I wasn't planning to do any of this. This is all just, we're just kind of rolling with it. All right, so you've got this have-been, past-tense statement about the Corinthians who were really, really, really struggling. Emphasis on struggling. And if you're only thinking about this when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to holiness, it's like, well, how could they ever be, be said to be sanctified in the past? They're, they're a mess. The Corinthians are an utter mess. You might look at your own life and say, I'm a mess that ever happen? <laughs> okay, happens to me. I'm a mess. So in what sense am I a saint? In what sense am I considered sanctified already? 
Well, you've got this aspect, don't you? Where when you believe on Christ and His finished work, you are considered by God not only forgiven, but perfectly holy because the holiness of Jesus covers you completely. And so we're called holy ones. You here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a saint. That's great. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart in the world. You're a holy one that's been plucked out of the darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You're holy. Now, this is still a reality for you. The practice part, the struggle part, still a reality. That's why this letter exists to the Corinthians. This cooperating with God toward Christ's likeness still exists. But this is also a reality. And that's why it's, it's referenced up here, because the important point for you to understand is that your practice, this part, this struggle, is fueled by or founded upon this reality. You have a new nature. You believed in Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to you, meaning legally you are considered completely innocent by God, and you've been born again. You've been given a new nature, and it's from that new nature. This is the born again stuff. Okay, born again, new nature. It's from that you live for God in this life, and you're able to have victory over sin. It's only because of this reality. And again, you could go back and you could say those words we were just looking at. You've got justification. Look, I've got red and green going like it's Christmas. Justification and sanctification. You have been sanctified, justification, and you are being sanctified. Okay, what we typically call sanctification. There you go. All right. Questions on that? like I'm a football coach or something. I just spent a bunch of time writing on a whiteboard with arrows going every which way. Okay. Now's the time to ask questions. I'm going on. All right. So you have a new nature, completely sanctified nature, yet you are still being transformed throughout the course of your life if you're a Christian. Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay. You're being transformed day by day. Christians must depend on the work of the Holy Spirit for sanctification as we still possess a body of death. Have you noticed that your body is not very cooperative? Yeah, uh, Katrina up here in a sling says yes. Uh, she's noticed that. Okay, Our bodies are just not very cooperative sometimes. And have you noticed that you still think with old thought patterns that are not good? You still have habits that are not good? You still have those things that linger, that need reforming in your own heart? you got all those things that, that still you have to address? Well, that's why you must depend on the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if you were left to yourself, this would not be a very successful battle for you. So uh, here's a statement from a group I'm a part of called the IFCA. Here's a section that they have in their doctrinal statement about sanctification. We believe that every saved person possesses two natures, with provision made for victory of the new nature over the old nature through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. All claims to the eradication of the old nature in this life are unscriptural. So let's uh, dwell on this here for a moment. Let's meditate on this, uh, what it means, this, that second part, what it would mean that the old nature would be eradicated. You guys got any thoughts on what that might mean, what some people might believe about the old nature being eradicated, what that would look like? Hayden. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's good that you use that word because there have been a few people throughout church history, a few people with some influence throughout church history who have taught something like this, and it's called perfectionism. Okay, so perfect is the appropriate word. And this is a, a book that's done, uh, that was written critical of perfectionism and kind of walks through the movement throughout church history. But uh, John Wesley was probably the most famous teacher of perfectionism and the, the founder of the Methodist Church, though he didn't know that at the time. He was just an Anglican. But uh, perfectionism is the belief that you can, by God's power, eliminate the old nature, the sinful nature, so that essentially you would be free, completely free from all conscious sin. Now, a lot of them would say there's still some sin you don't know about. There's unconscious sin, but you could be free from all conscious sin. But we deny that that can happen. It sounds nice, but that's what that's heaven. Okay, that, that's heaven is being completely free from sin. In this life, you're, you're never going to be completely free from all conscious sin. Now, will you grow? Hopefully. Will you mature? Will you be more discerning? Will you be more successful in your fights against sin? All of those things, yes. Yes, yes, yes. But will you be perfect? No. No. Right? So it's important to distinguish between those two things. And it feels weird being put in a position where it's like, you've got to argue that, you're, that people are still going to sin. I don't like to argue for that. But that's the reality. That's the reality of the world we live in. Dean. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, so let me um, search. There's a cross-reference in 1 John, I think. Um, let me see. Oh, I know. It's, I know what word to search now. I'm, I'm cheating and using a concordance. Don't tell my supervisor. Uh, let's see. What does 2.1 say? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he also says there at the beginning of his letter, if, in, if anyone... I mean, maybe that's what you just read. Sorry, my mind was trying to do two things at once. If anyone says he has not sinned, he, he, yeah, he's a liar, and he calls God a liar. So um, the full context of 1 John is important. It, it could be if you had one verse taken out and you heard, what was it, 3-2 that you read? 3-9. If you heard that one verse, it's like, oh, okay, well, we can be perfect. Because it says, don't sin anymore, and if you do sin, then you know, you're not saved or something like that. But if you look at 1 John 3 earlier, just verse 4, he uses this word practices, and he uses that word multiple times in this uh, epistle at key points about practicing sin and practicing righteousness. He says in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Okay. Um, Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So on the one hand, he's saying, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar and you're calling God a liar. On the other hand, he's saying, anyone who practices sin doesn't know God. Yes. So if we're trying to like synthesize these two things, it's the same author, same letter. So if we're trying to say, well, okay, what is John saying here? 
then he's saying, if you go on practicing sin habitually, unrepentantly, if you are making habits out of sin, that is a key indicator that you have not met the living God. That you are not serious about holiness. That you're not concerned about being sanctified. If you can go on practicing sin in such a cold-hearted, disconnected way from what God has called you to do, then there's a serious concern there. Let's go back and revisit the gospel. But he's not saying, uh, you know, you, you commit a sin, and that means you're automatically just out of the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if you know of anybody's sin, then you go up and tell that person, you're not a Christian because you sinned. That's not what he's encouraging, like, at all. Okay? So it's good to read all of 1 John together. Mandy? Yes. Yes. It's like when Paul says in Romans 6, 1, and you all can turn to Romans 6, that's where we're going next. Romans chapter 6, if you look at the very start of that, he says something extremely similar to John. He asks the question, the rhetorical question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? <laughs> certainly not, he says. Certainly not, or heaven forbid. Continue in sin. That's what he says. Are we to continue in sin? And that's the same idea that John has. Are we to continue those old patterns of rebellion, those old evil deeds? No, no. Uh, Paul is saying, you cannot say, oh, the more I sin, the more God gets to show off his grace. So I'm going to go keep sinning. So that way God can keep showing how gracious he is. Ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we cannot think that way. We cannot let our minds go there. Um, but we have, to, we have to see the holiness of God and pursue that. Other questions, other thoughts there? Romans 6, 15 to 23 is where we'll go. Those nine verses there. Would someone please read that for us? Romans 6, 15 to 23. Yeah, don't even look at me, Stan. I will quick draw, call on you. Mandy, thank you. All right, so I've got a couple questions for you, and I know that was a lot. So kind of run your eyes back over, go back up to 15, and start looking back over it again. What is the obligation put on the believer in this context? 
And there's probably not just one right answer here. So what are you seeing as the obligation put on the Christian here in this passage? Taylor. Good. That's right. Before you were slaves of sin, verse 20. Past tense, you were slaves of sin. But now we are to consider ourselves slaves of God. And that is true freedom, isn't it? Uh, some people think that, you know, true freedom is not being a slave. Newsflash, you're going to be a slave of something. Okay? So if you are out in the world, you will be enslaved by the various lusts and passions that exist out there in the world. That's the nature of your creaturely heart. You've got a, a heart that is just made to follow something, to be enslaved to something, whether even that's your own passions. But instead, we are to be slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. Look at the end of verse 19. Present your members, that's your body. Present your body as slaves to righteousness, and that results in what we call sanctification. On what basis is this obligation reasonable? How could it be that Paul could commission us to do this, that the apostle could say, this is what we are to do? Because you could read a verse like that and say, whoa, that's intense, slaves to righteousness. How, how could anybody do that? Well, what's Paul's reasoning here? How's it reasonable? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Well, what? How could we become slaves of righteousness? How is it that God could even expect that from us? Okay. Which is rooted in what? Going back to the whiteboard, our sanctification is rooted in what? If you've been saved. You've been born again. You've been given a new nature. If you've been saved, God says, you're mine. You're my child. And he gives us his power to do this, doesn't he? It's by the Holy Spirit that we are able to live such a life. It's by the power, the very power of God, that we can live a life that's set apart for God. He works in us. He works through us. He empowers the new nature that he's given us. It's not like he causes us to be born again, and then he goes hands off and says, okay, now let's see how high you can jump. Let's see how long you can dance. Let's see how good you can sing. Perform for me. That's not what God does. But when he causes you to be born again, he lives in your heart. He dwells within you. Romans chapter 8 says, do I have that one on there? I don't. Romans chapter 8 says, the very spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gives life to your mortal bodies. That's great news. And that, that way, it makes this passage a lot more reasonable, doesn't it? Like, oh, okay, God's equipped me with all that I need in order to live for him. How should we feel about our former sinfulness? Now, obviously, we all still sin. But how should we feel about the times before that Paul references, according to his terminology here, and we've kind of been saying it already, how should we feel about it, particularly verse 20 as it's phrased there? Yeah. Shamed. Good. And that it was slavery. And what were we free from before, according to verse 20? No, we were enslaved to sin. Yeah, there you go. We were So now, isn't that interesting? Now, you are free from sin, and you're enslaved to God, and you're enslaved to righteousness. Before, you were free from righteousness, and you were enslaved to sin. And the devil, the snare of the devil. 
that amazing? Total kingdom change. And so you're going to be enslaved to something. Would you rather that be God and righteousness or the devil and sin? That's really the question, isn't it? And how you answer that question kind of says something about where your faith is too, doesn't it? Okay. All right, let's keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So the very next book after Romans, you have 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The end of that chapter. Again, written to these believers in Corinth who had lots of issues, lots of struggle. Who would read those two verses for us? 30 and 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Mike, thank you. All right. How are you in Christ Jesus, according to verse 30? Uh Uh-huh, that's right, by his doing. That's a good reminder, isn't it? Puts you in your place a little bit. In what way did Jesus become these things to Christians? Look at that list of what Jesus has become. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. How has he become those things to us? Hmm? Yeah, so, and that's a really interesting way of looking at it because he's going to be those things regardless. If no one believed, which was never the case, so we're going anti-biblical hypothetical here. If no one ever believed in Jesus, he was still going to be those things. But he becomes those things to us through faith. By God's doing, putting us in Christ, we now recognize him as wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Perhaps before you just saw him as like an interesting historical figure. Perhaps you saw him as a weak guy. Perhaps uh, you saw him as like, okay, he's a decent teacher, but you know, he was kind of a loony, loony guy. Now, as a Christian, you see him as the most precious person ever. He is wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. What an amazing list. Because, of course, he's God. The wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption we see in Christ is all found at the cross. If you just go back up, same chapter, 22 to 24 there, it hones in on the cross, and it says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross is God's power. The cross is God's wisdom. Amazing stuff. Okay, and then let's go to Hebrews. After this one, I'll pause to see if you got any more questions or thoughts. Hebrews chapter 12, toward the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. If you're looking for an additional note to write there on 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that that we were just looking at, consider this. If Jesus is our sanctification, doesn't it make sense that you would get more sanctified the more you follow Jesus? You would get closer to maturity the closer you are to Jesus. If he is the goal, if he's the standard, then the closer you get to him, the closer you are to where God wants you to be, right? So Jesus is the the bullseye of the target. He is what it's all about. 
Hebrews 12, 14, just one verse. Who can read that for us? Hebrews 12, verse 14. Jen, thank you. Okay, so we get two things to pursue here. The first is peace with all men. Very good. The second is our focus of the class today. We are to pursue sanctification. And what's on the line? Without sanctification, what do you not get? There you go. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now that's really interesting and should be motivating. There's sanctification, there's holiness required to see the Lord. So what is our relationship with sanctification supposed to be? If you look at a verse like that, what's our relationship supposed to be with growing in holiness? Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Pursue. 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 Does it say pursue so that way you can arrive and then take it easy? No. <laughs> I, I think the idea that the author of Hebrews here is putting in front of us is, your whole life is a pursuit. And it's not like the carrot dangling on the stick in front of you. That's not what it's like. Because along the way, there will be true achievement. There will be true victories. There will be uh, true tangible growth. Habits that are taken away. New behaviors that take their place. That stuff will happen. It's not just the, the carrot dangling on a stick. However, you never reach the place where you say, I am now perfectly holy. That never happens. You will always be a creature. You will always be dependent on God. And there's coming a day when you will be glorified. And in that day, you will be free from sin. In this life, it's a struggle day by day. It's a pursuit day by day until you die. Believers should see sanctification as a moral objective. This does not mean we sanctify ourselves. It means we pursue the one who sanctifies. So again, thinking about 1 Corinthians 1, that Jesus is sanctification to us, we pursue Jesus. The more we pursue Jesus, the more sanctified we will be. Okay? Thoughts, questions on these things? Yes, it is. So, so important. Yes. Yes. And again, going back to the football coach board, okay, we have this big arrow across the bottom, our faith, our justification, our, our initial salvation, initial belief. All of that is the foundation for our practice. It feeds into our practice. It motivates our practice. Okay. If we don't have the practice going on, though, it causes us to come back and revisit this and say, has this actually happened? So they, they play with each other that way. They feed into each other that way. So even, th even though this is the key foundational feeder into our lives, our lives sometimes, if we're going on in such a way where we're practicing sin, the kind that John talks about in 1 John, it sends us back here and says, okay, did I really believe? Have I really been converted? Have I really been born again? Have I truly been given a new nature? Am I truly a new creature? And we should be concerned about our salvation if we do not have works that reflect that we've been saved. Now that can be, you know, taken too far, for sure. 
Because what some people will do with a, a statement like that is say, okay, well, we got to develop standards. If you're not reading your Bible for 30 minutes a day, if you're not praying seven times a day, if you're not uh, at at least 95% church attendance, if you're not giving this much, if you're not doing the blah, 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 then you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying at all. However, I'm saying this, there will be some people who will say that they're Christians and they're not struggling to cooperate with God toward Christ-likeness. They're very, very comfortable practicing sin. If that's the case, then we got to say, let's talk about your faith. And we go back here. And we have a, this conversation. And if there's a true conversion, if there's true belief, we come back here and it will evidence itself this way. But we have to be really careful because we never want to tell a true believer that he or she is not a believer. Never want to do that. But at the same time, we want to warn them, don't we? Okay? Thoughts, questions on that explanation? Mandy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how comforting that it says in verse 2 that Jesus is the one not only who authored our faith, but he's the one who finishes our faith, the perfecter of our faith. We are in his hand. And so those whom are the called, those whom by God's doing are in Christ, they will live a sanctified life. They will finish the race. They will see the Lord. Okay? But we are not God, so we don't have his certainty on that, do we? <laughs> we can't look at somebody and say, I know for certain you're this way or that way. We have to kind of wrestle with that, and that's the struggle. But was there more you were going to say on that, Mandy? I didn't mean to cut you off. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Other thoughts or questions? Good. Yes. 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 Hmm. That's exactly right. We, uh, and this, this is something that can happen sometimes when you deal with religions that take the Bible and have bad interpretations, is they can bring up a passage like James 2, faith without works is dead, and you want to say, James, okay, why did James write that? Now i got to explain James and try to fit the gospel into this. No, don't let them do that to the Bible for you. That's your book, Christian. That's not their book. They're tampering with your book. And so if someone quotes a verse, you say, amen, absolutely. I believe that verse. But let's, let's see what James was really saying. That's your book. Don't let them take one verse from you. God gave you that book. And so, yeah, you go back and you can explain this. Okay, I've got a lot of stuff on here that doesn't need to be on here. You can keep it really simple. True faith leads to true practice. If you don't see true pra practice, it reflects something about the status of true faith. That's it. And so, yeah, faith without works is dead. Absolutely. Because true faith produces true works. That's true sanctification. Okay? So, don't be scared of those conversations. Jump right into them. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, because uh, this can, of course, be imitated to a degree. Once you start prodding, you find out, oh, there's a lot of pride wrapped up in there. That's not humble service. That's prideful service because true service is going to be humble, isn't it? So, but yeah, true faith, uh, a true confession of faith in the biblical gospel, you either have it or you don't. And so hone in on that when you get in those conversations.
Godliness develops out of the new nature. You've got this on your sheet for a blank here. Created by the Spirit through the gospel. How do you get godliness? How do you get holiness? How do you start practicing righteousness? Well, that develops out of the new nature that God created by the Spirit through the gospel. The only way that someone has the new nature that allows them to live for God is because God the Spirit has come into their hearts and given them a new nature, and it was through the gospel. Never ever is somebody going to truly live for God apart from the Holy Spirit's work in the gospel. Never ever. So it's going to be from that point, someone is going to be able to live for God. Our participation is necessary, but sanctification happens because of God's effectual work in our hearts. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 bear this out. Very key passage, just a pair of verses. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Okay, here's, here it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You got two things going on, one in verse 12 and one in verse 13. Verse 12 is work out your salvation. That's, a, that's an imperative, that's a command to the Christian. It is on you to, here's the word, cooperate with God. It's on you to do that. But why do we use the word cooperate? Well, because verse 13 says, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's already there, willing and working. He's already in you, motivating you. He's already in there, working on your brain. He's already in there, developing, shaping your spirit. All that's already going on if you've been saved. Your duty, then, isn't to conjure up righteousness out of nowhere. You are not God. You cannot speak things into existence. Your job is to cooperate with God, meaning you yield to the Spirit. You don't grieve the Spirit, but you yield to the Spirit. You are led by the Spirit. You study the Word of God. You see what God has said. You ask Him for the strength to obey. You ask Him for the humility to obey. And in so doing, you're working out your salvation by cooperating with the one who is at work in you. Okay, good. Making sense? Hope so. Okay. First Peter. Let's all go to First Peter together. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to finish with uh, the start of First Peter and the start of Second Peter. So toward the very, very back of your Bible, First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now again, we want to highlight some very important words that are in here that have to do with our living for God as those who have been born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Why were you saved according to verse 2? Why were you chosen by God according to verse 2? Okay, but for what purpose? To do what, Hayden? 
Yeah. To obey Jesus. You were saved to obey Jesus. Now that's a good thing, isn't it? Because according to Romans 6, what are you not doing if you are obeying Jesus? What are you not doing if you're not a slave to sin? Well, then you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to unrighteousness. You're free from righteousness. So you are saved to be a slave of Jesus Christ, a slave to God, a slave of righteousness. And this is, of course, that phrase that Hayden also read there in the middle of verse 2. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You can't do this on your own. You can't obey Jesus on your own. You are dependent on your Creator. You're dependent on God the Spirit in order to obey Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit brings about a work of sanctification. And the Holy Spirit, as we just looked at, is compelling us to obey Jesus Christ. So remember, you are told not to grieve or quench the Spirit, but instead cooperate with God. That's the idea, to cooperate with God. Now, I also want to show you Second uh, Peter chapter 1. It's not in your notes, but we're going a little bit off script a couple times today. The very beginning of Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This will be the last passage we look at together. Second Peter 1, 1 through 3, that we can see some more information regarding our sanctification. Who would read this for us? 2 Peter 1, 1 to 3. Who's got it? Mandy, thank you. Hey, everyone focus on verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3. What more do you need to live for God? What more do you need than what you have right now? Nothing. Notice it says, His divine power, God's power, has, past tense, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Like, how, how comprehensive, how sweeping is this? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. You have everything you need to live for God. Nothing's missing. You can't say, oh, you're not going to get to heaven or you're not going to get to judgment day. You're not going to stand before God and say, see, This is why I kept sinning, because you didn't give me fill in the blank. Can't say that. You cannot say that. God has given you all that you need for life and godliness. You're a Christian. You have the Word of God. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Church of God. What more do you need? Not a thing. Not a single thing. I find that to be rather encouraging. Let's finish with a few quotes here. John Frame. Some have taught that the way to holiness is to let go and let God. But that idea is not biblical. In the first place, we don't need to let God, for God is sovereign and does not need to wait for us to let go before He can work. 
And we should not let go, for God commands us to fight in the spiritual battle. I like that. I like that analysis of that phrase. Let go and let God? No. How about hold on tight to God? Okay. Hold on tight. Don't let go, but hold on tight. John Owen. So this is uh, going back a few hundred years. So we're getting into that old English stuff. Do you mortify? Meaning, this is a command. Mortify. Make it your daily work. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How's that for a phrase? Can you remember that one? Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Very, very true. And then John Murray, a final quote. God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us, both the willing and the doing. God gets all the credit for any progress that we make. But that does not mean let go. That means hold on tight to the one who's willing and working. Okay, final thoughts or questions pertaining to sanctification, growing in holiness. Doing okay? Hopefully it's a little bit clearer than mud. I trust it is. Well, next week, we will start in on the nature of the church, which is called ecclesiology. And we will talk quite a bit about Israel's history before we start talking about the church. Okay, that is going to be the goal. You have now finished section seven, the nature of salvation. You are now all distinguished professional theologians as it pertains to salvation. Good job. Way to go. I don't have graduation caps for you. That'll be when we finish the whole thing, and then we'll toss them in the service. It'll be, it'll be great. All right, I'll pray, and then we will uh, have some time to fellowship before the next thing. Father, we thank you again so much for this day that you've made, all the wonderful ways you've blessed us. Help us today as we look into your word to uh, consider deeply what it means that Jesus is Lord, he is King. Help us to cherish Jesus Christ more because of the time we spend together in your word today. God, we love you so much and thank you for this time together in Jesus' name.